If you will, grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 26 through 38 this morning. We're going to talk about the coming King as we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate Christmas uh, this next Saturday. I think it's fitting, obviously, that we're here in Luke chapter 1 and going to look at the coming of our King. Malcolm Tucker was uh, driving through the state of North Carolina, and all of a sudden his car just stopped. He wasn't much of a mechanic, probably non mechanic at all, and so he didn't know what it was that was going on. He didn't know how to fix it. He found himself in that small town there in North Carolina, so he figured he could find someone that would help him out, and he began to walk around trying to flag people down, and fortunately he couldn't find anyone who was willing or even able to help him. It was a Sunday, and so about everything was closed around the town. Thankfully, he found the local sheriff, and the sheriff took him to what many refer to as the local theologian. His name was Gomer Pyle. He ran a service garage there in the town. You probably know what I'm talking about. Gomer looked at the car, and he said to Mr. Tucker with his little North Carolina twang, it might be a gauge problem. She'll tell you if it's an, it's an F when you really got an E. You hear that, and you, if you're old enough, remember the, the show that it comes from. Gomer's diagnosis really makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's exactly where many people are today. You see on the outside, uh, there's a lot of people that, that, that give the, the, the resemblance of being full. Their life is full. There's a lot of things happening. Uh, they're oper- operating. They're running at full capacity. I mean, they got social engagements uh, just uh, everywhere. They're, they're full. Their schedule is full. Their work schedule is full. They Look at their family schedule. It's full. There's things happening all the time. They're running and going. Our lives are full today. Many of us are empty. Mr. Tucker told Gomer that his car had fuel in it, but the stark reality of the situation is it didn't matter what the gauge said, what mattered, what was or was not in the tank, and his tank was empty. You see, it doesn't matter how the gauge reads in our life. The fuel tank is empty, and when the fuel tank is empty, it's empty. Today, there's a lot of people running on empty. Perhaps that's your condition this morning. You've come in, and we've got a pretty good crowd here for Sunday, uh, first Sunday of Christmas break, and, and many of people will be traveling this week and next week and visiting with family and enjoying Christmas together, and, and so it's good that you're here, but many of you might have come in today, and, and your tank's on empty. On the outside, it looks like it's full. Your life is full. You're running at full bore. And yet, you're empty. You want others to be impressed by just how full your life looks and feels, but the truth is, you're as empty as you can possibly be. Well, the Lord Jesus, as we look here in Luke chapter 1, was born into a world just like that. The lives of the Jewish people there in Palestine, they were full. Uh, They were busy. They were doing things. They had full work schedules. They had full family schedules. They had full religious schedules. In fact, you could make the argument pretty clear that this century, the first century A.D., was the most religious era in the history of the Jewish people. They were a religiously full people. They were deeply devoted to the Torah and to the Mishnah. They anticipated, they longed for the Messiah. They were waiting for him, hoping for him to show up. And yet as they filled their lives and as they filled their schedules with religious things, darkness just continued to settle around them, continued to settle within them, and there was no glimpse of light on the horizon. 
I shared with you last Sunday that when the angel Gabriel came and visited Zechariah there in that temple and began to share with him what was going to happen in his wife Elizabeth's life and how she was going to bear a son and his name would be John, I shared with you that in that moment there had been 400 years of darkness with no word from God, no prophet speaking, nothing coming from heaven. It had been silent. Darkness was everywhere. People looking for the light, but no light was to be found. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Glorious light was beginning to dawn on the horizon. Glimmers of hope were being given. We see it in the fact that Gabriel comes to Zechariah, begins to talk about how he's going to have a son. The son's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Hope was coming. Light was beginning to shine on the horizon. And now six months later, Gabriel comes again. Now he's going to visit a young maiden, a young lady named Mary, and he's going to tell her that she's going to give birth, and she's going to do it in a miraculous way, even greater than Elizabeth's birth. The son she's going to carry is going to be the coming king who will fill the lives of people with his life-giving light. Let's look at what Luke has to tell us about this account, beginning here in verse 26. Luke says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I don't know how much you think about our faith as Christians, but one of the things I admire a lot, perhaps even most, though I cringe at saying most because there's so many wonderful things about our faith, but one of the great things about the Christian faith is that it is a historical faith. What we read here in the pages of Luke, what we read in the pages of all four Gospels, and for that matter, all 66 books of the Bible, is history. What's happening here is happening in time and space. It's happening around and among real people in real places that are recorded in history. During the Christmas season, we celebrate the historical birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, that little village just outside of Jerusalem. For Mary, however, this beautiful story doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It begins in her own hometown of Nazareth, up in the northern part of of modern-day Israel. She was from that northern region. She was from that region known as Galilee. This region was the subject of uh, abiding Jewish contempt because the people, especially in Judah, the southern part, regarded those in Galilee as mongrelized people. They, They viewed them as unkosher. 
because they had so many contacts with Gentiles. Nazareth especially had this sort of reputation. It was a shoddy, corrupt halfway stop between the port cities of Tyre and Sidon with a large population of Gentiles as well as Roman soldiers. And so the Jewish people lived there among these heathens from a Jewish perspective. In the eyes of the Jews, Nazareth was nothing more than a spot in the road. It was a non-place with a bad reputation. In fact, when Philip was trying to tell his brother about Jesus of Nazareth later on, we see in John chapter 1, verse 46, Philip's response to that was, can anything good come from Nazareth? That was the sentiment of the people in Palestine. That was the sentiment of the Jews, especially those who lived in Judah. Very little was thought of this town. This young girl here named Mary that we read about in these verses was betrothed to a young man that we also hear the name of. His name was Joseph. And Luke tells us that he was of the house of David. He was of the family tree of King David. It's significant in the storyline of Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as King. Joseph and Mary, is, they were betrothed, they were engaged, and this engagement is a, a whole lot more significant than our engagements today. If you get engaged to a, a, a young lady or a young lady gets engaged to a young man in today's world, that engagement can be broken. But back then it was very much more like an, a marriage. The only way you could break the betrothal period is to actually engage or commit some sort of sexual immoral act so a divorce could be taken could take place. A certificate would actually be given. And so here we have Joseph and Mary betrothed to one another, engaged to one another, and not yet married. They have not yet come together as husband and wife. They're moving towards marriage, but not yet married. And so Luke here places great emphasis on the fact that she is a virgin. She's not married. She's betrothed to Joseph. So there's never been that moment where husband and wife have come together. And this is an important theological point as we think about the incarnation of Jesus and the redemption he will offer. So Mary here, betrothed to this young man, Moving toward marriage is visited by the angel Gabriel, and he announces his presence with a greeting. Very similar in some ways to what we see with Zechariah, but different also than that which we see in Zechariah. When angel Gabriel showed up to Zechariah, he didn't really say anything. His presence said it all. Uh, Zechariah, I don't know if he turned around, I don't know if he disappeared in, in front of Zechariah, but he was immediately awestruck by the glory and the splendor of the one who represented the Lord. And he fell to his feet in great fear. And, and now what we see in, in Mary is it's not like that. It's almost like Gabriel comes up from behind her and with a soft voice that says, Greetings, O favored one. She turns around, she immediately recognizes this is an angel. She immediately recognizes this is not just some ordinary common man from the street corner. This is the angel of the Lord. This is someone sent from God to speak to her, and yet she is comfortable with it. What does trouble her, though, is not the presence and the appearance of the angel. It's the words that he speaks. He says, oh, favored one. This was an unimaginable type of greeting in her world. For, for instance, she was a woman. She's young. She was from an unknown town, a shoddy town with a bad reputation. Everything spoke against the greeting that she received. It made no sense to her that the angel of God would call her a favored one. 
And what we see here is a beautiful thing. In coming to this young girl in Nazareth, God is passing over the glory of Jerusalem. He's passing over the wisdom of the priests and the Pharisees to bring his gift to humanity through the humblest of his people. And that was troubling to her. Gabriel declares that Mary is favored. This young teenage girl who is unread, who is unexperienced, has the favor of God resting on her. And so as we hear that statement, it ought, to, it ought to conjure up some questions. What in the world does this mean? Why would the angel of God declare to her that she is favored by God? Well, I believe certainly it does not mean Hail Mary full of grace, as the Dore Reims Bible might translate it. I came across something this week that I think is interesting. According to Raymond Brown, who's a Catholic New Testament scholar, he says this faulty translation from the Latin Vulgate gave rise to the medieval idea that Mary, and I quote, had every gift, not only spiritual but secular, even above those given to angels. And according to Brown here, the idea of Mary being a dispenser of grace arose, which actually led to people offering prayers to her because she's the dispenser of grace. Pius IX, the, uh, the pontiff there in 1854, extended this understanding in his, under, in his addition to the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception by declaring that the Blessed Virgin Mary was kept free from the stain of original sin. I do not believe that's what Gabriel is saying here. What we find in Mary is that she's going to carry the Redeemer of the world, but through him she will also need to be redeemed. She is not kept free from the stain of original sin, but God in his grace, God in his sovereign favor chooses her to be this vessel, to bear the gift to humanity, but through the gift she will give birth to, she will also need to be redeemed. But she's favored. Mary was graced with being the mother of the Lord Jesus. I want you to think about this. Of the billions of women who have inhabited the earth, the only woman whose face Jesus most resembled is Mary. Think about that. He didn't look like his daddy, earthly daddy, because he didn't have one, right? People knew that he was Joseph's son. They didn't probably understand that. I bet a lot of people were whispering behind, that's not really Joseph's son. Uh, she was, that, that, that came out of some sort of extramarital type thing. That was the word on the street for the whole situation. But she looked like, he looked like Mary. Her DNA was coupled with the DNA of divinity. And what we have here is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Lord, his name is going to be Jesus. She's going to bear a son. He's going to, they're going to name him Jesus. And we learn from Matthew's gospel what that name really means. Matthew tells us that he's going to save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, the Hebrew word, it's also translated Joshua in the Old Testament. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. It's a common name in the Old Testament. It's a common name among the Jewish people. It was a common name during this first century scene in Palestine. But the Lord Jesus would be the first and the only to fulfill the hope of the name. That he would be the one who brings salvation to his people. You see... Mary's son would usher in the kingdom of God, and he would fulfill the hope of Israel. Of course, this news is puzzling to Mary. She wonders how this can happen. She even asks the question, how can this be? How, how can this happen since I am a virgin? Her question sounds very similar to Zacharias when he questioned what Gabriel had said, and yet it's altogether different. 
His was based out of fear. Hers was based out of faith. She's asking a biological question. I'm a virgin. Help me understand how this is going to happen. And yet, all the while, believing that God can and would do it. Gabriel explains that she will be overshadowed with the Holy Spirit. The language here is used to describe God's presence in the temple. We see the same sort of language uh, speaking of God's presence overshadowing there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus up on the mountaintop and Jesus kind of took his flesh down for a moment and they beheld his glory as he overshadowed in that moment. So the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow Mary in this situation. There's going to be no sexual union. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to overshadow her. He's going to place a human body in her womb and, and this little human body is going to grow into an infant. He's going to na- be named Jesus. He's going to grow up and to die on a cross for our sins. Divine DNA is coupled with human DNA as the Holy Spirit overshadows this young girl. Gabriel reminded Mary that nothing is impossible with God. That's some, one of the things we need to be reminded of. Hopefully Christmas reminds us of this, is that nothing is impossible with God. If God can speak and everything that exists comes into existence, then it's nothing for him also to come and overshadow a, a young virgin girl and cause her to become pregnant. That God would take on human flesh. None of these things should be uh, impossible for us to understand because God can do anything. So Mary responds to this statement. She responds to this news. She responds to this calling upon her life, and she just surrenders to the plan. Surely she had a lot of thoughts going through her mind. Can you imagine being her and hearing all of this and you've got plans? I mean, you and Joseph are kind of planning what you're going to be doing in the next several months as you get married and start a life together and where you're going to live and the kids you're going to have and all their friends. And all of a sudden, in one moment, the Holy Spirit sends Gabriel to speak news to you and everything changes. Her mind, I'm sure, was spinning. Her heart was spinning. Her stomach, her her guts were spinning as she tried to make sense of all of this. And yet, she she surrendered to it. She She surrenders to the plan of God in her life. This beautiful story came to people who personified full lives. Their gauges Read full. They had temple worship and ceremonial feasts. They enjoyed the ancestral privilege of being Jews and living in the land of Israel. The, the people in Palestine in this moment possessed the Torah. They, they listened to the prophets. They read from the writings, and yet they were still empty. They needed something more. Better yet, they needed someone more, and that someone is the little baby Jesus that's about to start growing in the womb of Mary. Today, on this Sunday before Christmas, I want us to look at this coming king. And my prayer is this, that we will not just have full schedules, but we'll have a full heart that's been transformed by Jesus. I want us to see this morning that that God's gracious gift to mankind is Jesus, and he's the one who redeems the world. I I want you to see four things about this coming king. First of all, I want you to see the coming king is virgin born. He's virgin born. Uh, Many times... Three times, I think, specifically here, we picture, or we get the picture that that Mary is a virgin. 
Luke is pointing this out. He's emphasizing this. Why? It's because it's important to the story. And in fact, if we were to go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there the prophet prophesied that the, Mer- the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Matthew connects it specifically in his gospel that, 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 that what was said in Isaiah 7, 14 would be exactly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Luke may very well have had this verse in his mind, but he does not specifically connect it here in his gospel as he's writing to give this accurate view of the history, the life and ministry of Jesus. I bet he has it in his mind, but he doesn't detail it like Matthew does. He's simply telling how God will do an unprecedented work through a faithful young woman. Some people argue that Luke is pointing out how Jesus' birth is greater than John's, and and I believe that's part of what Luke is doing here. But I also believe there's still more going on in the text as it relates to the theological idea of redemption. And so how does the virginity of Mary play in and carry a role in the coming of Jesus? We remember the angel told Joseph in the vision to name the boy Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. You see, the sole purpose for Jesus' coming, as Luke is going to tell us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, was to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to just make us better or teach us some good things. He came to die so that we could be forgiven of our sins, that those of us, all of us who are lost in our trespasses and sins can be found and be made re made reborn in Christ. So how is mankind lost and how are, how are we in need of being found? Well, the answer to that question is the nature of sin that each one of us bears. It's the result of Adam's sin in the garden. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, it was his rebellion against God. It was his rebellion against God's word when he says, don't eat of that tree. And what did Adam do? He ate of that tree. It was that rebellion that brought the curse of God upon every generation. That, that, that curse perpetuated that rebellious spirit. And so Jesus here was conceived of the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. His humanity was not derived, listen to this, from Adam's seed. Therefore, he was not born under that curse. He is not the result of fallen and depraved human achievement. No, Jesus is the result of God's divine achievement, God's divine power overshadowing Mary. And so he's not born with the edemic sinful, that nature that is passed down from Adam to you and I and to every generation. He's not born in that, under that. You see, our natural default is sin. Our natural default is rebellion. That was not Jesus's natural default. He was not a sinner who learned not to sin. He was not like you and I in our sinfulness and then somehow walked his way out of it. No, he was God holy and yet in human flesh and was able to say no to the temptations of the world. And so as God's gracious gift, he was sinless and today frees us from our sin. The virgin birth enabled that. Secondly, the coming king is the son of God. We look at verse 32 and and Gabriel here is going to give some descriptions and some understanding of what this Messiah is going to be. He says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Gabriel here is declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. 
Now, as we read that, as we think about that, when we hear son, that means that the son came from the loins of the father, which means he's a creation. We should never read into this that Jesus is a creation of God the Father. He is not an afterthought. He's not a secondary thing. No, we should understand this perhaps in this way. He is God the Son co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Holy Spirit. In fact, as you read this passage, you see all three attributed, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow. The, the, the God the Son's going to be placed in the womb of Mary, and all of this is at the beckoning of God the Father. Jesus is God the Son, co-equal with the Father, subordinate in his role. And so what this means for us pragmatically is that Jesus was not just a great teacher, Jesus was not just a great prophet. He was not just a miracle worker. Jesus was not a martyr who died for a great cause. No, what Jesus was and what Jesus is, is God the Son in human flesh. He is, just as Isaiah prophesied, God with us. He is Emmanuel, God in human flesh. You see, the coming king is God's gracious gift of redemption. He is the Son of God. Thirdly, the coming king is the Son of David. Look at the latter part of verse 32. It says, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The throne of his father, David. Well, I thought he just said he was the son of God. How is he the son of David? How is he going to carry the throne of David? Well, what we have here is David's throne is emblematic of the messianic kingdom. If you remember what God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, in that what we call the Davidic covenant, God promised David that he would never lack a, a, an heir to set on his throne, that this would be a perpetual kingdom. And it was speaking to so much more than just that, that kingdom there in Israel. It was speaking of a messianic kingdom. It was speaking of the larger kingdom of God. God here, though, is making clear that through the angel, his purpose in sending his son was to carry on the kingdom. It was to redeem a people unto himself. The kingdom of God is about a people in covenant relationship with their creator and with their redeemer. All throughout the Bible, we read how God never abandons humanity. And I want us to see that as we read this passage here, as we read recall this story of Mary and, and, and interacting with Gabriel and hearing what's going to happen to her and what this is going to mean, not just for her life, but for everyone else. It, it reminds us that God does not abandon his people. I mentioned Genesis 3 just a moment ago. Adam and Eve, the very first two humans, messed things up, did they not? I mean, they had it all. They had life that we can only imagine of. God says, here it is. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's yours. Enjoy it. Be fruitful. Multiply. Have dominion over it. Uh, just relish in it. I mean, just get after it. It's awesome. It's for you. But there's one stipulation. Don't eat of that tree. And of course, they wandered over. They ate of the thing and, and blew the whole thing up. And everything was messed up because of that. And you would think, I mean, as a, as a father, I, I probably would have been blowing a gasket in that moment. You had, you had all of this and you couldn't be satisfied with that. You had to go to the one little straggly looking tree over here that you probably didn't even like until someone said something about the fact that you couldn't eat from it and you went to it and I would have blistered them if I was God you would have too and yet what does God do Genesis chapter 3 
He comes walking as he always did. He comes walking and calling, Adam, where are you at? Eve, where are you at? He knows they're hiding. He knows they're, they've made loin coverings. He knows everything about us. He knows the thoughts in our heads. He knows what we're going to say, what we're going to do. He was not surprised about what he found. And yet that didn't keep him away. He pursues. Even after he gets them to confess that, even after the curse, he ends chapter 3 with a blessing. It's a picture of salvation as he takes animals and kills them and uses the skin to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness. That is what God does. He does not abandon humanity. And we see that beginning in Genesis 3, all throughout the pages of Scripture, for instance, God calls out Abram. Abraham, who's Abram at this point in Genesis chapter 12, is a pagan like everybody else. He's not a godly man. He's an idolater. He's a pagan. He's worshiping idols. And God calls him to himself and, and changes his life. And even in that relationship that Abraham enjoys with God, God, he messes up multiple times and God continues to pursue him. Moses is a guy who's fled his people. 40 years he's lived in the wilderness. He's an outcast. He's, he, he's running away from what God would want him to do because he was wrestling with that back in Egypt 40 years prior. And finally God comes to him in the form of a burning bush and sends him back to Israel, or sends him back to Egypt. David, this messianic kingdom is set up around him. Well, who is King David? Well, you know what his life was like. He did a lot of great things, but he also did a lot of terrible things. In fact, Bathsheba and Uriah are his two worst things, in my opinion, that he ever did. When he should have been going out to battle, he stayed back in the, in the palace, and he looked upon, he was a peeper, he looked upon a woman as she was taking a bath, he sent for her, he um, did what he did with her, and then he tried to cover it up by killing her husband. And yet, a year or so later, God sends the prophet Nathan to him because he doesn't forsake his people. And through Nathan, the prophet brings David to a place of confession of sin and brokenness and repentance, and God restores him. And here, the kingdom is perpetuated, not because David was a great person, but because God is a gracious God. God never abandons his people. Even after Judah had been exiled to Babylon, if you know the story of the Old Testament, in small groups right now we're learning it and walking through the book of Ezekiel. And, and what we've seen so far is that even in the exile, as the people of Judah have, have been exiled because of the rebellion against God, their hearts have still not been changed. And yet God is still not going to abandon them. He's punishing them. He's bringing retribution against their sin. But he's still sending the prophet. He's sending Ezekiel to preach the gospel to people who are under his judgment. God never abandons his people. And so what we see in Jesus here is God sending himself, sending his son to the world in, in, in this Davidic covenant to not abandon the people of God, to bring a Messiah, to bring hope, and to bring life. God's messianic kingdom is moving forward. It's welcoming more and more people. But there's a fourth thing that I want you to see about the coming king, and that is he reigns forever. The coming king is reigning forever. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. God's promise to David was that there would not cease to be a king sitting on his throne now, we know history, and we know there's not a king sitting on the throne of David today. In fact, there's not even a kingdom in Israel. 
Some of us will be able to get on a plane, Lord willing, next month and fly over to Tel Aviv. And we're going to spend uh, roughly 10 days going around the Israeli countryside. And we're going to see a lot of those things that we read in the Bible. But here's one thing we will not see in Israel, a king sitting on the throne. So how is there not going to be an end to this kingdom? Well, God means more than an earthly throne. We know from history that David's earthly throne was interrupted. We know that Babylon came in and conquered Judah and ransacked Jerusalem in 586, finally putting an end to the king. We know there's still no king sitting on that throne in Jerusalem. So the earthly throne symbolized the spiritual throne of God's messianic kingdom. This kingdom is comprised of all believers who have found life in God through Jesus Christ. And one day, however... The earthly throne will be reestablished. Jesus will come again. He will return to conquer Satan, death, hell, and the grave. Revelation 20 makes that abundantly clear to us. So as those who have been redeemed through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, here what we see is our redemption is everlasting because the Lord's reign is eternal. We share in his victory. We share in his triumphs. Jesus may not be sitting on the throne physically in Jerusalem today, but he reigns nevertheless. And there's coming a day that he will set down in victory because he is victorious and we share in that victory. The coming king is God's gracious gift who's reigning forever. Jesus here is going to enter this world among people just like you and I who are steeped in darkness. A world that is full, a world that is active, a world that has full schedules, a world where people are worshiping and praying and and people who are following the rules of their religion. That's what's happening in Palestine in this moment. Their spiritual activity, however, gave no glimmer of light. The people were busy raising their families. The people were busy growing their businesses. Many of them worked hard to make life and the condition in their communities better so that others could have a better life. Their community involvement, unfortunately, did not result in the holistic transformation they were working toward. See, personally, they needed something more than just a cultural movement. Likewise, the community needed something more than a cultural movement. Outward transformation was not enough. They needed something that would work on the inside and work its way out. And today, I can say this with complete assurance, that we need something a whole lot more than an outward transformation. We need an inward transformation. Light had shone on the Jews for centuries. What do I mean by that? I want you to think about in the Old Testament. Light is shining on the Jews. How is that? Well, they had the law. Moses brought the law to them, right? When, they, when he brought the people of, Is, of, of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, God gave them the law. They gave, he gave them the, the way they were to live their lives, the way they were to go about their families and their, their culture, and everything was given to them in the law. This is how they were to live, to worship, to give, to serve, to, to, to do government. Everything was there for them. Light was shining on their, on their lives and on their families. They had the law. They had the prophets who God sent because they weren't following the law. God sent them prophets to speak and to say, thus saith the Lord. They had worship. They worshiped in the tabernacle. They worshiped in the temple. They they gave sacrifices and offerings and all of these different things. They also had the prophecy of a Messiah to come. 
And that's where the real change began. See, the prophecy of the Messiah who would come would be one who didn't just speak outwardly. It would be one who did something internally. The prophet, especially like Ezekiel and some others, said that that this Messiah is going to come and and he's going to take out that old heart of stone and he's going to replace it with a heart of flesh. What do you mean by that? It means there's going to be an internal transformation. I want you to picture something with me. I wish I had it physically to to illustrate this, but I want you to just kind of imagine I'm holding a box, and and this box has got holes cut in the sides, and and, and obviously inside the box, because the light is on the outside, inside the box, even with the holes that are there, it's primarily dark, right? You can't see inside the box. The light is not transforming what's inside the box, because it's external, it's not internal. But imagine I've got a hole cut in the bottom of this box and I shove up inside the box a lantern of some sort or maybe a real high-powered flashlight and all of a sudden the darkness that is inside the box that the light outwardly cannot penetrate and change, all of a sudden when there's light on the inside, the darkness is dispelled. It's gone. And what's happening through those holes now, when you looked at it from outside, you saw darkness. But now when you look at this box with the holes and the lights on the inside, what do you see? You see light. Light's shining out of that. That's what the Lord Jesus is coming to do. As Gabriel stands here before Mary in this moment, he's talking about a Messiah who's going to come, a king who's going to come, and not just give them more religion, but to give them the relationship God has always desired, a relationship that is transformational, a relationship that's not religious in nature. Though it has religious overtones, it is not religious in nature. It's transformational in nature. Why? Because it works on the inside out. Light shining from within. Jesus is going to take out that old heart of stone and is going to replace it with a heart of flesh. Today, some of you are like that box. Light has been shining on you for years. You might be super religious. You might strive to be a good person. You might be very committed to your family. You're a hard worker. You're involved in the community. You support good causes. And all of these things are important and all of these things are good, but none of these things are transformational. They won't transform you and they won't transform others. They provide a measure of light in a culture of darkness, and yet they cannot dispel that darkness. Why? Because it needs to happen from within We need a movement in our hearts and in our minds from the inside out. What you need is light shining on the inside. You need Jesus to transform your life. This morning, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would just ask the question, what in the world are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I can tell you from personal experience, religion is not enough. Man, as a teenager, I was as committed to, 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 the, to the Christian religion as anybody I knew. And yet I was as miserable, I was more miserable than anyone else I knew. Because it was never enough. And I've met countless people over my 20 plus years of ministry. That is exactly where they are in their life. They're going through motions. They're running their race, but they're getting nowhere. In fact, it seems like they're on slippery slope and they just keep regressing back further and further and further. Why? It's because the light's never come to shine within. It's simply shining from without. This morning, you need to open the door and let the light of the gospel come within your life. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But some, here's what happens in a lot of us, because most of us are Christians in this room. We get so busy with stuff that we shroud the light of the gospel within us. 
We cover the light of Jesus within our lives, with our activities, with different things, with, with, with family and work and, and recreation. We, we just kind of, we, we marginalize the life of Jesus within us. We, it's kind of like those pillows that we take off our bed because our wives have 45 pillows that we have to take off before we go to bed. And we put them at the end of the bed where we're supposed to set and tie our shoes, but instead it's a mound of pillows. And we put our clothes there, so no longer do we see the pillows anymore. That's what happens in our life. The gospel is there, and we pile stuff on top of it. Try to be funny in the midst of all that. What we need to do is start taking that stuff off and let Jesus shine once again, get our priorities right. I don't know what your life is like during this Christmas even, but it's hectic, right? We're, we're busy right now. Not just Christmas, it's every day. It's every day. We turn on the television set and it's doom after doom after doom, right? We're going into the winter of death and, and just things like that all the time. It's never good news. It's always depressing. And that weighs on you, does it not? I mean, we laugh about it right now, but it's, it weighs on me. I don't know about you, but it makes me angry. I've kind of been walking around a little anger streak going up for about 20 months because it's like, come on, give me some good news in all of this, right? What happens in that? We allow it to just kind of put another layer, another veil over the light of Jesus in our lives. We're not living in light of that. Why don't we stand to our feet? I don't, I don't know what the Lord would have you to consider this morning, but two things that I kind of highlighted here at the end. If you're not in relationship with Jesus, I, I trust that you're going to get some really good gifts on Christmas morning, maybe Christmas Eve. But this morning, I know there's a gift that God would love to give you that far surpasses any gift you will ever receive in this life. And it's the gift of his own son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you will just simply believe what the Bible says about you, kind of like Mary, you are loved and favored. You're a sinner, yes, but we need to hear the first part of it. God loves you. God cares for you. He created you for himself. You are beautifully created, wonderfully created, marvelously created for God. He wants to be in relationship with you. The problem, though, is you're a sinner. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all failed to meet the standard of his holiness. But that sin has broken us. It's separated us from the Lord. But he is pursuing us, right? Adam and Eve in the garden had, had royally messed up. They disobeyed God. He says, don't eat of it. They ate of it. He, if I was God, I would have wiped them out. I'd have said, I'm starting over. And yet God pursues them in their sin. This morning, he's pursuing you. My encouragement is that you slow down so he can catch up. My encouragement was that you just stop and you just say, Lord, I need you. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm, I'm, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I need to be. I need you in my life. Forgive me of my sin. Become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender. I yield. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to make that decision. For a lot of us in this room, we're Christians and God has changed our life, but we've continued to veil his light within us through all kinds of, most of the time, good things. And this morning, maybe he's just saying, hey, why don't you take some of that stuff off? Why don't you take it off and allow my light to once again shine through you, change you from the inside. Why don't you just take a moment. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. And if you would, just ask the Lord, Father, 
what do you want to say to me today? Just be honest with him this morning. Open your heart. Be vulnerable this morning. What is he saying to you this morning? I believe the Holy Spirit's moving in our hearts. I believe he's speaking to us. What is he saying? If he's telling you that you need a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you need your sins forgiven, will you surrender? Will you yield? As a Christian, if he's saying, man, there's some things in your life that's out of sync. Priorities are not right. Are you willing to do what's necessary? Are you willing to do what he tells you to do? Father, we this morning just want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you for the gift of his life coming into this world. Teaching us, showing us how to live. But we're thankful that he did so much more than that. He wasn't just a good teacher or a good moral person or a cultural mobilizer. He wasn't even a martyr. He's the son of God who lived a perfect life and laid that life down as a sacrifice to satisfy the God the Father's wrath against our sin. Lord, one of the ways we can describe the act there on the cross is to think of it as a substitute, his life in place of ours. And we're gracious. We're grateful for that. We're thankful for that gracious gift that he's given us. This morning in this room, maybe watching us online, there are some people, adults and teenagers, maybe even some children that are left, that that's the decision they need to make this morning, to receive that gracious gift into their life. And Father, I pray that in just a moment as we open up this time of response and, and encourage people to come forward, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us to follow your will. God, I pray for Christians in here. Lord, if you placed your finger on an area of their life and said, you know, that's kind of veiling my glory. It's veiling the light that I want to shine out through you. Lord, I pray that we'd be willing to just do whatever you're telling us to do. You're the king. You're the king that's coming to this world. And we are your subjects. May your will be done in us in our homes, and our church. And God, we pray that your will would be done in this community and around the world as we allow your light to shine out through us in this world. Darkness dispelled because of the wonderful, beautiful, life-giving light of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.